Good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here this morning. Once you look at your neighbor and say, the Lord is very good. And it's good to have you next to me. Praise God. Man, I'm glad to see everybody this morning. I hope you're doing well. I really sense the presence of the Lord this morning during worship. Can we just give our worship team a hand for how wonderful they lead us each and every week? We appreciate that so much. So listen, uh, just like you heard there from Jeremy, you get an opportunity to be a movie star if you want to get involved in that. But listen, if you're new to us as well and uh, you'd like to get to know a little bit more about us, we'd love to meet with you. So stick around after church. We'd love to chat if you'd like to do that or at least sign up and fill out a connect form there on our website. But we just want to thank you guys again for being with us this morning. I'm going to begin a new sermon series uh, this morning and it's going to culminate on Easter Sunday, which is seven weeks from now. And it's going to be the seven sayings of Jesus in the book of John. And we're going to go through that one by one, one saying at a time. And I think that the Lord's going to show us a lot about the nature of Christ and just His glory and, and, and what it is that He wants for our lives and who He wants to be in our lives. So I'm going to begin with this first statement, which is the bread of life. And we'll, we'll unpack that. But in John chapter 6, I want to read verses 1 through 15. And then we will begin. Here's what it says, John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Just like Jesus, always testing. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread, Lord, is not going to be sufficient to feed them, that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your presence. And God, we come to feast on your word, on the living bread. And God, when your word comes, you said that it doesn't return to you void or God empty or without power, but it accomplishes that which you send it to do. And so this morning, I ask for your help, Holy Spirit. I ask for your anointing. I ask for your power. I ask that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our eyes, and you would allow us to speak and to hear, God, what it is that you're saying to each of us in this moment. God, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to each of us, that we could be transformed by your word. We ask for an encounter with you, Lord Jesus, this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 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 
How many of you, like, you, your favorite number is the number seven? Anybody? Like, that's me. Anybody? Nobody else. Everybody. I love seven, dude. I've loved, I've loved seven since the beginning. When I played baseball, I wanted to be number seven. Mickey Mantle was number seven. I don't even know why I like Mickey Mantle. Dude played in the 50s and 60s, but I was down with him. You know what I'm saying? He was good. And I love the number seven. You know who else likes the number seven? John the Apostle loves the number seven. Over and over again, he uses the number seven through the things that he's writing. But seven, if you look even in the world, is an important number. It looks like it's kind of like God designed things with seven in mind. There's seven continents on the planet. There were seven wonders of the ancient world. There's seven scale, seven musical notes on a scale, seven colors in a rainbow. Seven, they say, represents the, 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 basically the limits of our working memory and channel capacity. Like, for example, whenever they tested to see what kind of numbers we could memorize, they decided to make phone numbers seven numbers long because they thought that was the limits of our mental capacity. That's what we could memorize most efficiently. And so there's seven days in a week. God worked six days in creation. Then he set the seventh day apart. He made it holy. He sanctified it. When John wrote the book of Revelation, there were seven letters to the churches there were seven trumpets seven seals seven bowls and get this there are 700 instances in the bible where the word the letter seven is mentioned or, or the, the, the number seven is mentioned 700 i think that's pretty interesting so you see seven throughout scripture and john he crafts the entire gospel around the number seven but john's life is interesting in and of itself because john was one of the apostles of jesus he's most likely the youngest apostle of jesus and disciple of jesus yet he was the only one that died of old age and when john was an older man if you remember the story, they actually started, the, the emperor brought him in, tries to get him to renounce his faith. I've told you this many times, they dipped him in boiling oil three times to try to get him to renounce his faith. And each time he ascended out of the oil and he did not renounce his faith, he confessed faith in Christ. And then on the third time when they come out, they saw him unharmed. It scared everybody in the Colosseum so badly that the emperor exiled him to Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now others will say, scholars will say that the book of John was written 30 years after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John wrote that later on, and he had, he had had time to process these things, to think about these things, and to be very specific and systematic about what he was writing in the Gospel of John. And so he, he crafted his entire Gospel around the number seven because seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of divinity. It's the number of God himself. Seven is the number of Christ. And so in the, the, the Gospel of John, you have seven, I am's of Jesus the statements that we're working through you got seven signs that Jesus performed different healings that were pointing directly to Jesus as Messiah when Jesus goes to the cross guess how many statements he makes while he's on the cross he makes seven statements there are seven witnesses that testify of Jesus in the gospel of John there are seven life-changing conversations that Jesus has in the gospel of John there are seven women that are mentioned in the gospel of John and there are seven ministries of the Holy Spirit spirit and do you know how many sevens that is it's seven sevens praise God I don't know I don't know if you're feeling this I've been, I've been studying this stuff all week I got more stuff to say this morning than I'm ever possibly going to get out well you're going to get out to go eat lunch about 1 30 today so just buckle up <laughs> buckle up 
I'm sitting there just studying some of these things, and it's astounding to me what God does through His Word. From beginning to end, I'm always blown away through what God does through His Word. But see, just like, even Forrest didn't even know what I was preaching this morning, but he talked about, God, give us that living bread this morning. We want bread for our souls. Ain't nobody in here except maybe Naomi eating a literal piece of bread I saw her eating this morning. But when you come this morning, we're not serving up for you loaves that came from the oven. We're serving up for you fresh revelation from heaven that comes directly from the Word of God. And he says, there's bread that is for your soul. There's something, and we, we talk about this because there's bread, obviously, that we eat for our bodies. But then sometimes, you know, somebody will say something. We're, we've been talking about crazy stuff. People talking about the Nephilim, and we'll say different things. And somebody said, well, it's just food for thought. Food for thought. Because it's bread for your mind. But he's saying, no, it's not just bread for your mind. It's not just bread for your physical body. There's something that transcends all of that that is greater. And you need a bread for your soul. You need something that is deeper than that. And so he begins to discuss and unpack some of these things. And what you've got to understand is that in John chapter 6, he's talking about this kind of food that is for your soul. Because a full stomach is temporary, right? But a full soul and a full spirit is eternal. And this is the kind of point that he's trying to make for us. And in John chapter 6, if you read the entirety of John chapter 6, it begins, Jesus is doing miracles. People are seeing his signs. And i got to be honest with you, if I saw a random dude doing a bunch of miracles, healing sick people, multiplying food and stuff like that, I'd probably go check him out, anybody else. Like you'd probably go. So he starts to gather a following, and they're checking him out. But the disciples are worn out. Jesus takes them to a mountain. He says, boys, let's take a rest for a minute. But because they're, they're resting, and they're getting aggravated with the people, but guess what? Tons of people show up at this place and Jesus tests one of his disciples and said, boys, where are we going to get food to, get to, to feed these guys right here? He just tests them to see. Because here's the thing, Jesus is always trying to stretch the faith of his disciples. He's doing miracles and trying to bring them into a place where they might respond, well, Jesus, there ain't no food here, but we know you can make some, my big guy. Like, that would have been, that been the decide. That would have been what he should have said, right? This is what Jesus is trying to bring them into. But he says, Lord, let me tell you something. And this is how we always think. This is how I often think about resources when it comes to the kingdom of God. They said, Lord, 200 days worth of wages wouldn't be enough to buy food and for everybody to eat in this place. Why? We don't have enough. We ain't got enough. And, and, and so he says, well, what do we have? And they said, well, we got this, this lad over here, which is what you should call young children. He says, this lad over here has got about, you know, he's got a few fish, a few loaves. But I mean, how, how, what's that going to do among so many? And see, he's always thinking in terms of what we don't have. We often think in terms of what we don't have. Even when it comes to the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God, we often think in terms of what we don't have and of what we're lacking. So Jesus says, what do you have? And they say that, and he brings them into a place, and they're saying, what is that among so many? But God is trying to stretch their faith to bring them into a place where they understand that Jesus is their provision, even when it seems like naturally you don't have the resources that you need you take something you say well I don't have enough for, to work for Jesus I don't have the mental capacity I don't know the Bible well enough Jesus is not saying Jesus is not saying you need to get that what he's saying is what do you have if you're willing to bring to me what you have and entrust what you have to me I'm able to take the raw material of what little you have and increase it and multiply it into much it's just a matter of whether or not you're gonna bring it to him sometimes I'll say this sometimes I've had so little 
that I've almost been embarrassed to bring it to God. And I've had unbelief in believing that what I have is so little that not even God could multiply it. Not even God can multiply the little that I have, but I'm telling you, when you begin to bring your little to God, Jesus grabs a hold of the raw material of your faith and says, watch me multiply this. Watch me provide more than you could ever imagine. But it's so interesting to me because what does, what's the first thing that he says whenever he gets the loaves and the fishes? He says, make the people sit down. It's an imperative. I imagine like some of them saying, I ain't going to sit down. And I'm just over like, Shut, no, you're sitting down. It's, the, it's an imperative like that. He's saying, make the people, give them a command to sit down. Why? I think, I think there's some meaning here. I don't think that there's anything, which it says that there's a bunch of grass in the field, and they sit down in the grass. Jesus goes on later, we're going to unpack, he's the good shepherd. Well, guess what the good shepherd does? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Why does he make me lie down in green pastures? Because I'm restless, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm doubting, and I'm thinking that i got to get up off of my hind end and do a bunch of stuff to make things happen. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you need to understand, you need to come into a place and a position of rest where I become your provider and you allow to, yourself to receive from me in this position. And it's very important that you do this because, because when we're receiving miracles, honestly, when we pray for people and even when people are, are, are wanting God to do something, they beg, they're striving, they're toiling. They think maybe if we anoint with the right oil or if we do the right things, it's not about how we do it. It's about coming into a position of rest and know he's the only one that can do it. Ain't nobody going to make bread and loaves multiply in that place. I don't care how powerful of a prayer that they pray. It's not about that. It's not on our end. It's us coming into a position of rest where we sit down and realize we are incapable. But he is the one. He is the bread of life. He's the one that is able to do it. Position comes before provision. Position comes before provision. You know, in the scripture, before it even unpacks, like in the book of Ephesians, before it even unpacks how you live and how you walk and the transformation of your behavior, the first thing that it actually says is that you are seated together with Christ in heavenly places. You're seated. A seated position means that you are at rest. You're no longer working. Why? Because Christ has already defeated Satan and his powers. Satan ain't got no hold on me. Christ has already confirmed and said yes and amen to all of the promises of God that are in Scripture. That means that I can come to the Scripture and I can know that my God shall supply all of my need according to His riches and glory. I'm sitting there stressed out, worried about whether or not we're going to have provision for the church and provision for the next season and provision for my family and, and provision to move forward and maybe adopt another child. Like There's a million things that can go by, through my mind and I think, God, I just we don't have the stuff. We don't have the stuff. But what I do is I sit down in a place of rest and I understand, no, no, no. I, you're able to supply all of my need according to his riches and glory. And I, and I sit in that seated position of rest. Jesus Christ has won this. I'm not trying to earn my salvation any longer because he dealt with my sin once and for all. He has given me forgiveness and he's made me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. No weapon that is formed against me is going to prosper in this life. And when Satan comes out against me one way, he's going to have to flee seven ways. Why? Because Jesus... Jesus has defeated him on the cross, and I can rest in that, seated in that position. So when you're seated and you're in a place of rest, then you can begin to watch God do a miracle in your life. Somebody amen me. Amen. Many of you are striving 
for God to do something. And he's saying, no, 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 I've already done it. I'm trying to bring you into a place of faith where you understand who I am and what I'm able to do in your life. And it says when they started to distribute what was enough for a handful of people to 5,000 plus people, it's 5,000 men plus women and children. They start to distribute it, and it says that they ate as much as they wanted. It just kept coming. As long as they wanted more, God was willing to give more. It was when they said, no, 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 I'm full, bro. That was when the supply stopped. And when the supply stopped, the disciples were able to take up a basket full of leftovers, a to-go box for themselves for later on that night at midnight. When they were on the boat later on that night, going across the sea, they're scared to death. They think they're going to die. All they had to do was look down at their to-go box. And see that, you know what, I saw Jesus just do a miracle just a moment ago. I got a to-go box sitting here where he fed upwards of 7,500 people total. And we took up a basket full of peace and they're sitting there munching on that when the storm breaks out. See, if you can remember what God has done in the past, it'll help you in your present. It will help you in your present if you can be reminded of what God has done in your past. So here it is. We're talking about the bread of life. And I, I saw this. I know I'm weird, y'all. I was studying some Hebrew. Sorry. But the word for bread in the Hebrew language is, is lahem, okay? And there's a lot to it. I, I really shouldn't break it down. I don't want to get too geeky and too nerdy, but I'll give you one point. There's a lot just in those three, in those three letters, lamed, chet, mem, right? So there's a lot just in those three letters. But if you look in the Hebrew language, the same letters are used for another word. And oftentimes, Hebrew will do this because it's trying to prove a point. And so bread itself is the word lahem. Fight is the same word with just a little bit of a change, a little bit of an accent on the first letter, lamed. So bread and fight are the same things. Now get this, here's the thing. When Jesus, in, in Psalm 23, he's our good shepherd, right? What he does is it says that he, he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I need a sword in the presence of my enemies, son. I need a table? Why do you want to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Because God has designed it. That we, the way that we defeat our enemies and the way that we fight our enemies is by taking that seated position in the victory of Christ and feeding on the bread of life. That's how we fight. And many of you are subject to attacks of the demonic and under mental turmoil and anxiety and not able to fight and not able to war because you're not seated at the table feasting on the word of life. You feast on the word of life, you feast on God's word, and God is going to fight for you, and he will have the victory simply because you're feasting on him. When you see all the enemies coming in around you, the best thing that you can do is have a seat at his table and feast on the bread of life. Feast on his word. That's how you fight spiritually. Amen. Feast on the bread of life. Jesus takes this bread that they gave them, and what's the first thing that Jesus does? He gave thanks. And you know, I often think about that because sometimes when we, we get over our food, we can be real ritualistic about prayer or we cannot pray at all. And you know, I try not to be real religious about it, but every, at least in my mind, I say to myself, thank you, Lord. You know what I'm saying? Just give the Lord thanks a little bit. Because here's the thing, in our world, it's sometimes very difficult, just like what Forrest was saying. I don't know what it is, but our world tunes us in the opposite direction of gratitude. It does. It tunes it. We're always complaining, always negative always focused on what we don't have rather than what God has given us. 
It's just the way that the world starts to tune our hearts. But the first thing that Jesus does before he distributes it, the first thing that he does is he gives thanks for the bread. Now, even secular research will tell you this. It is impossible to actually be grateful and anxious at the same time. Something misfires in your brain. It's like, oh, we can't do that. I can't be grateful and anxious at the same time. There's something psychologically wired to where we do that. And in this same study that I read, they actually said that if you will journal gratitude, if you'll have a journal of gratitude for 10 weeks, and this is secular, this ain't even Christian. Journal your gratitude, what you're thankful for for 10 weeks, they say you'll become a 20% happier person. Imagine mix the Holy Spirit in with that. I'm going to say it bump up to about 50, 60, maybe 70% happier person. You start to give thanks for what you do have rather than focusing on all of the things that you don't. There's a switch in your mind, and I believe that it unlocks spiritually the multiplication of God. This is what we see. This is what we see. I think when we can become a thankful people, you cannot, it's so easy even for me to get caught up in what I don't have, what I wish would happen in my home, what I wish would happen in my family, the things that I wish we have, what I wish this church was currently doing, what I wish the resources were that we currently have, how many people I wish we saw getting saved, all of those things. No, no, no. Give thanks for the one that gave their life to the Lord and give thanks for what He has given you in this moment. And as you give thanks for what He is doing, He starts to unlock the gates of heaven so that He can multiply and give you more because if you're not going to be thankful over the one you're not going to be thankful over the thousand and he's trying to change our hearts to receive what he's doing and so he's going to bless what you bring to him and he told the disciples he said all right boys he does the miracle they're saying jesus we want to make you king he's like no no, no i ain't doing that right now i got something to do i got to go to a cross i ain't this ain't about a worldly kingdom this is about a heavenly kingdom where you can be forgiven of your sins you can be washed in the blood of jesus if i don't go to the cross there is no redemption this is not about a physical world it's not about this age it's about the age to come so i'm gonna bypass that thank you very much i'll get my disciples down here in a boat i'm gonna tell them to go to the other side i'm gonna go up in a mountain and pray just for a minute it says in verse 10 verse 15 that when evening came he departed to the mountain to to pray now this is a type of the lord in the church today because the lord has ascended and he's in heaven away from the church isn't he now he sent his spirit thank god to be with us christ with us christ in us the hope of glory through the power of the spirit but the the church is out in the sea midway and the sea represents the nations because the church has been scattered throughout all of the nations. But guess what? The nations are tumultuous and in turmoil and the waves are tossing sometimes the church to and fro. And even in our generation, what you see is the Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. What? Praying, interceding for us while we're among the nations being tossed to and fro by the waves of this world and the demonic powers. Just trying to sustain, just trying to strive and row and get to the other side and while we're in the midst of that, we have all of these things going on. The Bible actually says that the church is often tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Yeah. Amen. Is that not what it says? Yeah. Do y'all not see that in our world today? Yeah. Every wind, every wave of doctrine, the church goes this way, the church goes that way. And we're in this turmoil, striving, trying to do work for God, trying to move forward in, in, in what God has for us. And it says that Christ shows up, you know when he shows up, the fourth watch of the night. The darkest hour, when they thought all was over. And, and I want to tell somebody in here this morning that God shows up oftentimes in the fourth watch of the night. 
When it seems like there's no way you're getting to the other side, when it seems like it's too dark, God shows up. And and here's what's so interesting, though. He shows up, and in Mark's account, it actually says that he would have passed by him. He shows up. They think he's a ghost, and it says, and he would have passed by him. He's just like checking out to see what they're going to do. What's up, boys? (laughs) Just just walking by, he would have passed by, but it's so interesting. Because in verse 20 and 21, John 6, he shows up and it says, but they said, but he said to them, it is I. You know what it says in the Greek? I am. I am. Do not be afraid. And that's what you need to hear when you're in a storm. You need to hear, I am. Do not be afraid. And it says, they willingly received him. He would have passed by in Mark's account, but they willingly received him. I think so often in our lives we are in storms and turmoil and tossed and fearful and anxious and Jesus is passing by and he would have passed by. He's looking for the people that will willingly receive him and say, Lord, my my marriage right now is in turmoil. There's waves, there's winds, it's breaking in on the boat. Our church is struggling in this area. My family is dealing with this. My body is in a mess right now. There's some things in my mind. I got some temptations and struggles, but I'm willingly receiving you into this area of my life. I hate my job, but Lord, I'm receiving you into my job right now today. I want you to come in and speak to the chaos and the storms of these situations and declare I am to the chaos. And you know what happens? He comes in because they willingly receive him. And in that moment when they willingly receive him, all of a sudden the storm ceases. There's a mega calm, the Bible says in the Greek. A mega calm comes. And I love what it says because it says immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now this, is, this is, was even more interesting to me. Now, you know me, if I, I want to know where they was at in the boat when that happened. Like what, how immediate we talking? Like where are you at in that? I got a map actually. Y'all know about me and maps. So he feeds the 5,000 over here on the right side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. From there over to Gennesaret and over to Capernaum is like seven, eight, nine miles. It says, it says in the Bible, they're like three, four miles out. So they're about right in there. That's when he comes walking. So dude prays on a mountain over here, walks out on the water. He didn't just show up on the Dude walked for like three miles on the water. He walked three miles on water. I don't know about that. Y'all. I, just, I, I sit and think about that stuff, and I just go into worship. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, <laughs> he walks three miles on the water, shows up. They think he's a ghost. He, he, he mega calms the storm, and as soon as they invite him in, like they're not moving. They're not rowing anymore. They're getting tossed back by the wind. The demonic powers and forces are trying to keep them from going to the other side. They stir up this storm, but when they speak and they invite him in, all of a sudden, immediately, they're on the other side. They're thinking, how did we make up four to five miles just like that? And I'm telling you, God is the God. This Jesus, he's the God of time and space. He's the God. Even his his first miracle, his first two signs revealed that he was the God of time and space. He's the God of, he's, he's he's the creator. He creates time, space, matter. All things came through Jesus. When he shows up and he does his miracles, the first miracle that he did, a lot of religious people don't like this one, but you know what he did? He turned water to wine. Bless the Lord. I don't know what else to tell you. Well, that was grape juice. Yeah, tell that to them back then. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, Either way, the dude did something. He turns water into wine. He's the new Moses. 
Moses shows up, you know what his first miracle was? He turned the water into blood, representing judgment. Jesus shows up as the new, new, new Moses. He turns water into wine, representing celebration of life. He does it at a wedding. And in this wedding, when he does this, he turns this water into wine. And what he does, I don't, you know, my, my cousin actually, they, 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 they own a big farm. They just started, they're starting a winery, but they've not been able to start it yet. Why? Because it takes a while to grow good grapes that are going to be usable for wine. And not only that, once you have the grapes, it takes, you got to let that thing ferment. It takes time. And then for the best wine, it even takes more time. See, he takes what was just water, three, fills up six water pots, which is the representation of man saying, I'm going to fill man with my spirit. And when I fill man with my spirit, what was simply water will come life abundant. And I'm going to pour that in. And I'm going to pour that in and do that in their midst. But what does he do? He, he takes material that ain't even the same material, transforms the material, but then compresses time and makes it the best wine. And the dudes drink it and say, man, most people wait to bring out the good stuff. They keep the good stuff for the beginning. You've waited till the end and brought out the good stuff. But Jesus made the best wine and saved it for last. And I think maybe if we are the last generation, maybe he is saving the best for last with us. Maybe he's about to pour out what he wants to do, but this his second sign, so he's the God of time. He can transform time. He can redeem time. You say, all these wasted years, he can redeem time. He's the God of time, but he's also the God of space because the second sign is a nobleman comes and says, will you heal my child? They're in Cana once again. His child is in Capernaum, sick, 25 miles away. Jesus spoke the word. He said, your son's healed. Go your way. He starts heading back. His servants come out to meet him. They ask, when was he healed? It was the same moment that Jesus spoke the word across 25 miles span. See, he's the God of time and space. There's no limitations to this God. And this is what we have to understand about Jesus. When we're thinking about Jesus, we are thinking about somebody with whom there are absolutely no limitations. Amen. Amen. So the disciples, all right, somebody said, get into the word, Clay, let's go. Taking too much time here. We'll get into the meat of the story. So the disciples and Jesus, they're now on the other side. Well, you know what them one dudes did? They watched Jesus go up on the mountain. They watched the disciples get into the boat, and they're thinking, man, I don't know where to get to Jesus. Let's follow his disciples because we know they'll meet up. So some of them get down in the boat later on the next morning, and they're going across because they want to see Jesus again. They get to the other side, and they actually say to Jesus, Jesus, how did you get here? Because they didn't see him get in a boat. And he, he doesn't even say, he doesn't even respond because he knows what's going on in these, in these guys' hearts. They don't want Jesus for Jesus' sake. They want Jesus because he gave them some good fish tacos yesterday. Because somebody, I got, we, me and Jeremy, we get people come to us all the time. They don't want us because we can give them the gospel. They want us because they might get a fish taco out of us. Amen. It's true. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus ain't against giving people fish tacos. He's down for that. He's good for clothing the poor. He's good for feeding hungry people. He's all about that. But every time he does something like that, it's ultimately to point them to the greater need of their soul. We could clothe everybody in this county and give everybody shelter and give them a million bucks apiece, but if their soul was not saved, it would mean nothing. And so he's trying to help us understand what matters most. And Jesus said to them in verse 26, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. You know, I like that because you go up here to Dollar General and go get you some cereal, 
stop by, get you some cocoa puffs, and it'll have a seal on it, FDA approved or, or whatever, certified by the American Heart Association. I'm thinking, it's cocoa puffs. <laughs> How are you going to certify cocoa puffs for anything, my friend? Uh, government lies to y'all. Y'all got to understand that, right? Amen. It's good preaching this morning. When the government sets a seal on something, I don't trust it that much. But when God the Father sets a seal on something, I trust it. This is the bread of life. This is what my soul needs. I'm not going to get symptoms 10 years down the road from eating this. I'm not going to have a heart attack from eating this bread of life. I'm going to receive something because the Father God's seal is upon this man. Then they said to him, what shall we do? that we may work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, that sign of them eating manna in the wilderness was actually a sign of the ultimate bread coming. That one day there was going to be a, there was going to be a, a bread that came down from heaven that satisfied the longings and the needs of your soul. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. They come across that river and are bold enough to speak to the man that created all things, that birthed their existence, that breathed the breath of life into their souls, and they come across and are bold enough to say, first of all, what sign will you perform? The dude just fed 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fishes. The problem with always wanting signs is this, and Jesus even said it. He said, if you will not believe the signs, he says, you're not going to believe even if a man were resurrected. Well, if God would just do a miracle, then I would believe him. No, you wouldn't. The Scripture says if you don't believe at the preaching of the Word, you won't believe if a man was raised from the dead. There's something that happens in the human heart. He's not looking to do a miracle just so you will believe. He has given us the preaching of His Word to create faith in our hearts so that we would respond and believe. And out of that faith, guess what? Every now and then God starts to do some miracles. But he's not doing a miracle for you just to try to prove something to you because you will just show, throw that miracle. I've seen people cast miracles off. I've seen people deny them. I've seen people reject them because he's trying to do something far deeper in your heart than just perform a miraculous sign. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of life to them, and that's important, and here's why I'm going to give you three quick points and, and be finished. But number one, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Why? Because we often think only about what we want. You say, well, that's a pretty simple point. It is a pretty simple point. He began this because he's speaking to a group of people who are basically only in it for what they could get for their stomachs. And he says, boys, I know. He calls them out. Y'all ain't nothing but a bunch of moochers. You just want food. I fed you. And I'm fine with feeding people. I like to feed people when they're hungry. But you got to come to me for something far greater than that. See, the sign was only meant to point to the sermon. And oftentimes God will do miracles in our midst, but you got to understand that the sign is, is meant to point to something greater. How many of you, you get thirsty and you're like in a mall or something and you see a sign for a water fountain and you go over to the sign for the water fountain and lick the sign? <laughs> Ain't nobody does that. 
Ain't nobody does that. Because you know that the sign is actually pointing you to something that has the actual source. And when Jesus does signs in our life, can I tell you this, that even God, I believe God's a healer. But I also believe that every, every healing is only partial and fragmentary, fragmentary until the coming of the kingdom. And that means that when we see healing power break out into somebody's body, and we should pray for that, we should believe for that. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, because the full healing doesn't come until Christ returns. But when it does happen, it is simply a sign of the coming kingdom that is one day going to break in among all of our world, and every diseased body is going to be made whole. Every diseased body is going to be made whole. So we thank God for the fact that He gives us these signs, but... See, they say Moses and the manna that came down from heaven, he gave us that bread from heaven. Jesus says that was just a sign of the fact that I'm going to come one day. But he says, I know, I understand where you boys are coming from because in our material world, how easy is it for us to get focused on what we need in our material surroundings and not what we need for our souls? We think about that all the time. It's, it's about what we want. Jesus, I'm coming to you, bro, for what I want. I got, I got material pressures. We don't have enough money. I'd like a bigger house. Like Things aren't going so well in my bank account. I, all of these things that pressure in on us in our world, and Jesus has promised us if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else we need will be added to us, but we still struggle with it, don't we? And we pursue these things. Of course, he uses the analogy of food. And everything that we get, even, even when we eat, he said, this bread that you eat, it perishes. Everything we do in life, it's what happens to it, right? How many of you, you know, you've got something, like, how many of you, you bought something one time, and it so satisfied you that you said, I'll never have to buy anything again. <laughs> you bought that one item of clothing, and you're like, oh, that was it. I'll never shop again. Ain't nobody ever done that. There's no man that ever got drunk and had such a good drunk that he got done and he said, oh gosh, that was so great. Somebody said, you want to go drinking tonight? No, no, no. I had such a good drunk last night, never needed again. I'm full. Nobody has ever done the first hit of drugs and said, man, that felt so good. I never needed again. Nobody's ever looked at porn one time and said, oh my gosh, I'm satisfied. My lust has been satisfied. I never need it again. No, that's the way that this world and all of the material things at work are in it. Here's what happens. It deceives you. You taste it once. You need it again. And you need it again. And each time that you need it again, you get more empty and more empty and more empty. This is why there are people. We have conversations. We had a conversation this week. You know people that make $800,000, a million dollars a year, and they're the most miserable people in the world. Now, you can make a million dollars a year. And have Jesus and know that the million dollars is just an additional gift from the heavens and it's not the God of your life. It's not what you're pursuing because you know it can't satisfy. You know it can't satisfy. You let the bread be bread. You let it be, you let it be what it is. You know that it can't satisfy. But see, he says, he teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. He's talking about necessities. And oftentimes, you know, rappers, they'll call money, what do they call money a lot of times? They call it bread. Call it paper. Amen. <laughs> Y'all are like, some people look at me like, who is this guy? <laughs> I read something this week that at the founding of the United States, get this, at the founding of the United States, American ha Americans had an average of three outfits. Three outfits. Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, she had a scandalous 
17 outfits. Today, the average American purchases 37 items of clothing each year and owns 107 items. We consider 27% of those items in our closet unusable. Can't wear that. Just hang in there. 50% of them aren't great, so we choose not to wear them. 12% we just never wear. I ain't touching the thing. Which leaves us with 11 items that we regularly wear. In our house, the average home in America has 10,000 pounds of stuff. 10,000 pounds of stuff. My point is this, you all. We live in a world that is a propaganda machine ever selling you something more. You need this, you need that. You need to buy this, you need to buy that. And it sells me on it, son. I was watching a UK game last night. I saw a commercial for Big Macs, and I hate McDonald's, and I was sold. I got to have one. You see a car commercial, you got to have, you got to have. It appeals to you. They're constantly throwing advertisements saying, you need this, you need this. Because, and, and somehow or another, we believe the lie, that will satisfy my soul. Yeah. We become addicted to it. We chase it, we get more, we get more, we get more. But what we have found, studies have shown, that the more stuff we get, the more miserable we become. The more anxious we are, the more fearful we are, the more stuff we accumulate, the more miserable we, we become. Why is that? Because we're eating the wrong bread, my friends. We're eating the wrong bread. And we constantly live in this propaganda machine. There was a guy, uh, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote this book called Fast and Slow, but he did a study at Princeton University, and there are 550,000 surveys done in this study. But he said, you know what? Your overall well-being does rise with your income. I want, this is going to help somebody this morning. I decided to add it in. Your overall well-being does rise with your income, but only to a certain point. What he's saying is what we found, the study that was found, and this is across America, and you all know that the, the, the standard of living in, in southeastern Kentucky is far lower than the average across the nation. Y'all yeah. with me? Yeah. And he says it does. Like, like coming out of poverty, nobody enjoys life when they ain't got enough money to feed their kids. Nobody enjoys life when they don't have mo enough money to pay their bills. Nobody enjoys life when they don't have shelter. Like, it's rough. Amen. God is not for poverty. I don't believe that. But I also don't believe in, in, the, in the prosperity gospel that God just wants to make you opulently wealthy, like just ridiculously buying $1,500 pairs of shoes all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, don't believe, I don't believe that's what the Lord wants for us. I think, I think that he wants us to understand how to use money and how to, how to get our necessities. He said he'd provide for us that daily bread, our necessities, what we need, and not just give us an extravagant American life. But he says what happens is to a certain point your life gets better, but you know where it maxes out at? $75,000. When a home, a household across the nation gets to about $75,000, they see that there is now no more correlation between how much money a person has and whether or not they are happy, and it either st staggers out or radically declines. And what they found in most instances was that people who had more and more and more wealth were actually becoming more and more miserable. It's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like the Bible had it figured out. <laughs> it's interesting. But we pursue that bread. Man, you got to get that bread. Psalm 106.15, if you remember the story about manna, I love this story about manna. They're crying out. They got manna from heaven. Guess what they do? God is giving them their daily needs and their necessities. They started to loathe the manna. They wanted more. Some people aren't just satisfied with the simple life and what Jesus offers them. They want the world. 
I'll, no, no, no. I appreciate all things you give me, Lord, but I want more. I want the world. I want all the things that I can get out of this. And so they turned their hearts. They said, we loathe that man, and we want some meat. You know what God says? I said, I'll give you some meat. If you read the scripture, he says, I'll give you some meat. It rained quail down out of heaven for days till it was up to their knees, and they ate so much that they vomited it out of their noses. I've told you a story before. I remember talking about this long ago. One time I'd, I remember one time I partied so hard, I'd eaten hot dogs that night, and we partied so hard, I got a hot dog chunk stuck in my nose as it was coming out the wrong way. Somebody said, my Lord, Clay, you the worst preacher. And here's what happened. It says that he gave them their request. Listen to this. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Man, that's one of the most powerful verses I've ever read. He'll give you, oh yeah, you want more. You want more of the world? Keep pursuing it, keep pursuing it, keep pursuing it. I'll give you your request, but what you're going to find is leanness in your soul. And one day you may be outwardly with all of these things and all of this stuff, but you'll start to sense there's a leanness in your soul. But you know what? God is so merciful that when you start to sense that leanness, He's still there saying, I am the bread of life. You can come and eat from me and you can come and drink from me and I will satisfy that longing. The reason you're pursuing all of those things in your life is because ultimately you need me. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me he says you can be content you can keep your life free from the love of money you can use money and I'll be, I, like I said here's the thing when I, go, when I go to a restaurant for example like if I go to a nice steakhouse and I, I'm for it I'm for it but you go to a nice steakhouse, they bring out good bread, man, they got the garlic butter. I'm going to have me a couple slices, you know what I'm saying? But what I know is, I, what I've never done is say, hey, just keep bringing me loaves. Just keep bringing me, I'm going to eat like four or five loaves. Why, why, why would you do that? You know the real stuff is coming down the road. You know the steak is about to come down the road. And that's what's really going to satisfy you. So you just sort of whet your appetite. You get it going. And what the point is, is look, you can have money, folks. You can have a nice house. You can have a good vehicle and enjoy it. But ultimately, that's just the, that's just the bread on the front end. And you've got to realize that you can enjoy those things, but they cannot be the pursuit and longing of your soul. You've got to wait on the stake. You've got to wait on this manna from heaven from Jesus. All, I thank God for the gifts that he gives us. I thank, thank God when we, when we can build nice homes or do whatever. All of those things are great, and, and we're not here to condemn anybody for, for mobilizing themselves and making money. That's not the evil behind it. The evil is when our hearts turn toward those things, and we actually believe the lie that it's going to make us happier. I got brothers and sisters in here make triple what I make. It don't bother me a bit. I thank God for the success that he's given them. But every now and then I believe the lie. If I just made as much money as them, I'd probably be happy. It's a lie. It's a lie. Thank God they do. Maybe one day the Lord will advance me. I don't know. Days ain't looking good. <laughs> but you know what? I'm standing on that promise. You can store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Y'all come down to my road one day up there in heaven in glory, son. It's going to be nice. <laughs> We're storing them up. Number two, what we need. What we need is a bread that's different entirely. What you're truly hungry for is not more money in your bank account, I promise. It's, it's not even more fine meals. Thank God how good they are. 
It's not more followers on Instagram if y'all are into that kind of thing. It's not more vacations and fancy trips, and I love vacations. We, me and my wife went on a vacation, man, last year. I mean, I love trips, but i got to be honest with you. I went on this trip, and I loved it. We went to the Dominican Republic. I loved it. It was a great time. I was wanting to go to a place like that for a long time. We went, and you know what happened, though, at the end of it? I was kind of empty. It was a weird feeling. And it was like the Lord started drawing back and saying, Clay, no wonder it's empty. That thing cannot ever satisfy the burden of your soul. And you start to look for things. Looking, y'all ever gotten that cycle where you're just looking for the next thing? Yeah. I need that next I need that next trip. I need that next gathering. I need that next thing. Just something to say. And he said, no, 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 that can't carry the burden of your soul. It was never designed to carry the burden of your soul. You can thank God for those things, but it was never designed to carry the burden of your soul. Imagine coming up to the man that was designed to carry the burden of your soul, and rather than asking him for abundant life in your spirit and in your heart, you say, hey, you got any more of them Cracker Barrel gift cards? You're asking him for something that ain't ever going to satisfy you. You're asking him for bread that was never designed to satisfy your soul. When Jesus makes these I am statements, he is declaring himself to be God. Why? Because he knows that what you need is not what God can give you. What you need is God himself. What you need is God himself, and he will add all of the things that you need in this life and in this material world onto you. But when he says, I am, there's two Greek words for it. He says, ego, I, me. In other words, he's saying, I am, I am. You know when else he said that? He said it back in the beginning, in Exodus, when he reveals himself to Moses. Moses is at a burning bush and God's sending him back into, back into Egypt to deliver the people of Israel. And he's like, Lord, they ain't going to hear me. Who should I say it is that's going to send me? Let's look at it here in verse 13. It says, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Jesus said, Ego, I me. I am, I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to them, to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He's declaring himself to be the God of the Old Testament. He's saying, I'm the one that showed up in the burning bush and spoke to Moses. I'm the one that sent, them, sent him back in there to deliver the people of Israel. When they applied the blood to the doorpost, that was the blood that's about to be applied at the cross to your heart so you can be set free. I am the blood of life and you're the bread of life and you're looking for something that is not going to satisfy your soul. He says, I am that I am. And here's the thing. We often feel so deficient. Moses felt deficient. He didn't think he could accomplish what God was sending him to. And when you say, well, Lord, I can't. He says, I know, that's fine. I know what you can't do, but I am. When you need healing in your body, he says, I am a healer. When you need protection over your family, he says, I am a refuge. When you need all of these things in your life, he shows up and he says, I am that I am. I can be that in your life if you will willingly receive me into this situation. Isaiah 55, 2. He says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Why do you spend money for what is not actually bread and going to satisfy your soul? C.S. Lewis says, I wonder sometimes whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. I wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. That we chase these material things looking for pleasure. And he says it's just a substitute for the real joy that you could find. In Jesus. Lastly, how do we receive? How do we receive? 
Then they said to him, all right, Lord, we hear you. You're the bread of life. What should we do that we may work the works of God? And I think we tend to make our relationship with God transactional where it should be relational. It's like if I go to church, maybe God will give me something. I say a prayer, maybe God will give me something. I fast a little bit, maybe God will give me something. I do this, and, and God will give me something. But he's not, it's not a transactional relationship, it's relational. It's far more about who he's making you into and who you are becoming than what you are constantly receiving from him in this material world. He wants to make you into somebody. John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. He said, you want a job? You want to do something? He said, believe in me. And i got to be honest with you. If I read that at face value, I think that's just too simple. It's just too simple, Lord. But when he talks about believing in him, he's talking about something that you really can't simplify. You're, talk, you're talking about the God of the If you believe in Jesus, that he is the bread of life, that he's the one that's going to satisfy your soul, you change the way you live. You change the way you think. If you believe that he's a, you put your trust in him. You believe for him to provide for you and your family. You believe for him to sustain yourself. You believe that he can set you free from the powers of darkness and transform who you are and set you free from your sin. You begin to believe that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he's going to do. And therefore, you're going to follow him and give, you, give him everything. It's a full This belief is not, oh yeah, I agree, Jesus is God. No, this is a full surrender of your heart. It's a full surrender of your heart. That you believe in Him, you trust in Him, and it's a full surrender. And then He says, I am the bread of life, verse 48. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now that sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? They thought it was pretty heavy. They said, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? That's what everybody says Sunday when I get done preaching. <laughs> it's a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? This is like, kind of like what the opposite of seeker-sensitive preachers say today. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Some of you you don't believe this morning. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and, he, and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now look at this. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus gives a full revelation of who he is. He says, I need you to understand that I am God. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm using a metaphor, but unless you consume all of me, my life, my teachings, the truth that I speak, but not only that, my body and my blood, 
because I'm going to die for you, and you're going to need to consume my death, which is a sacrificial death. You need to understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you need to recognize that I went to the cross, and you need to consume that reality within your soul. You need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. You need to consume that reality. But I think it's so interesting that this verse, this is the only chapter 6, verse 66 in the Bible. It's 666, and it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And you recognize that in the Scripture it talks about a time when people would receive the mark of the beast. And what would they be able to do with this thing? To buy and sell. It's an issue of trust. Will you trust God to supply your needs or will you move into a place where you trust the world to supply your needs? And many people will turn back and not walk with Jesus anymore because the pressure of the world that comes on them, and they say, we're trusting government, we're trusting the world, we're trusting these world leaders to supply our needs. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am still the bread of life, even when it looks like there is no bread. Now that hits. And that's something that we've got to consider because that's the direction we're heading. And he says to his disciples... Verse 67, do you also want to go away? He's not begging these guys to say, he says, hey, hold on, boys, I'll make more bread, hold up. He's not begging people like the church of the world is. He's lovingly preaching the gospel, but he's saying, no, 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 the demand on your life is still there. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to believe in me. He says, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what it comes down to, that statement. Have you really actually come to believe that he is the Christ, he's the Son of the living God, he's going to be your bread of life, he's going to be your good shepherd, he's going to be your light in the darkness, he's going to be every single thing that you need. Have you come to believe that Jesus is truly who he says he is? I want you to bow your heads with me. Each one of you this morning, you've got needs, you've got struggles, you've got things that you are wrestling with. And I'm telling you right now that Jesus wants to step into your boat in the middle of the chaos. And he wants to speak to each of your situations and say, I am. And the first thing that he wants to do, if you don't know him, he wants you to receive him this morning. To willingly receive him into your life. And so I want you to pray right there where you're at with me. Some of you, you may not know Jesus. You may need salvation. And I want you to invite him into your life. And I want you to invite him into your heart. And I want, I want you to call upon the great I am. And for the rest of you, whatever it is that you're going through, you know Jesus, but you need to invite him into some areas of your life. And, and you need to put him in that place where he becomes the bread of life in that area. So I want you to just pray to him right where you're at. Lord, we come to you right now, Jesus. And Lord God, we ask you, we invite you right now. I invite you into my life, into our lives. God, we confess our sin to you. We ask you to forgive us of our sin, to wash us in your blood, Lord Jesus. And we confess this morning, Lord, that we believe in who you are. You are the Son of the living God come down from heaven to save our souls. And you died on the cross so that we could have eternal life in you. And so, God, this morning we surrender everything that we are to you and we confess you as the very Lord of our lives. And we ask you, Lord, to become that bread that nourishes our soul in every single area. And, Lord, where people are struggling in different areas, I pray, Lord Jesus, that right now you would walk into those places where there's lack, where there's scarcity, where there's anxiety, where there's fear lord god would you come in and bring mega peace to that storm right now in jesus mighty name we invite you in and holy spirit we ask you to have your way even as we respond this morning in worship 
Do what you need to do in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.